You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Grifters, Scamps, and Thieves. This episode was edited by Marissa McCool, who you can find on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. Life, the universe, and everything else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Jim Newman, and with me tonight, I have Lauren Bailey. Hi. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. I don't know why, but I was scared I was going to forget your name for a second. <laughs> I mean, because you just did in your Word document right there? <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't have the intro. I, I do this intro cold, uh-huh. <laughs> Mind is like a steel trap. Well, the order today, we're going to go Lauren, Ashlyn, Lauren. <laughs> <laughs> We don't show how the sausage gets made. (laughs) So today we are going to talk about a bunch of scammers and con artists and their various scams and cons. Obviously, this is a rich vein that we will probably mine again. I always have fun talking about this subject. I'm going to start off by talking about Lonnie Sarum and the New York Times bestseller list. On August 24th, 2017, YA author Phil Stamper noticed something strange. That week's edition of the New York Times bestseller lists had just come out, and The Hate You Give, Angie Thomas's runaway hit about racism and police violence, had fallen to number two. That in and of itself wasn't unexpected. You can't stay at number one forever, and The Hate You Give had occupied the top spot for most of the year. What was strange, however, was that it had been replaced by a new young adult novel by debut author Lonnie Sarum, Handbook for Mortals. Stamper had never heard of Sarum, but while it's unusual for an author's debut novel to hit the bestseller list, it does happen. In fact, The Hate You Give, which Handbook had bumped from number one, was one such example. But the fact that there had seemingly been no pre-release buzz, no ad campaign, no press tour... Stamper was an acclaimed young adult author himself, and he was puzzled that a book in his corner of the industry had managed to sell enough copies to land at number one without him having ever heard of it. Mm. But hey, maybe it's just a really great book. Let's give it a read, shall we? (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) I pushed my long, many-hued hair out of my way the best I could as I threw my luggage into my car. A dark blue streak caught the light with a shimmer. I glanced at myself in the reflection of the car side mirror. People tell me I'm pretty all the time. Beautiful, even. I'm not sure I see what they see. I think I'm more of a cute, average-looking girl. I'm slender, but I do not believe most would say skinny. Not hot girl skinny, at least. I have long legs that are toned, but I think my thighs are too large and I do not have a thigh gap. My arms are kind of flabby, and while I do have an hourglass figure, I've always felt my butt is a little too big, and my face is a bit too round. Maybe people are just being nice. 
in a small town where everyone looks like they fell out of Mayberry, I think I look different. Maybe just the fact that I stood out was what they were seeing. I know how the neighbors describe me as sweet and kind, but rough around the edges. I've always just thought I was a determined free spirit, and tough only when necessary. You know how you really catch the kids of today? References to Mayberry. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the titular character describing herself, which is something that all good authors do. They have their character look in a mirror and describe themselves. (laughs) Check out Men Write Women, the Twitter account. (laughs) Of course, this is a case of women writing women, but I won't subject you to more. There's, There's ample evidence that there was not a lot of copy editing. Or editing of any kind. <laughs> it sounds like a nano stream of conscious. Yeah. D- done in, in this book, I found a single paragraph that was 90% single parenthetical with multiple M-parentheticals within it. Is this another Stephen King book? <laughs> <laughs> so, so poetry, it ain't. <laughs> After some quick Googling, Stamper discovered that Handbook for Mortals didn't come out of any of the big New York publishing houses. It was apparently the first book published by GeekNation.com, an entertainment website that had announced just the previous month that it would be dipping its toe into publishing. Outside of a couple of blogs that covered Geek Nation's press release, Stamper could find no mention of Lonnie Sarum's new book. The pre-release buzz was non-existent, and yet it had somehow sold enough copies to hit the list. Amazon didn't have any copies in stock. He couldn't find the book at Barnes & Noble either. The book only had nine reviews on Goodreads, all of which were five stars, several of which were duplicates. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) But data from Bookscan showed that Handbook for Mortals was doing brisk business all the same. What was going on? Hey, I've got a question for you. Let's say your new novel just came out. How many copies do you think it would have to sell to make this week's New York Times bestseller list? It literally depends on the week. It does. Give me a ballpark. (laughs) I don't know. Tens of thousands? <laughs> tens of thousands? Oh, I like I feel like it has to be a million plus, but maybe I'm thinking of like lifetime ones. Okay. In the hundred thousand range is pretty good. What if I said a couple thousand? There are a couple of things at play here. First, there isn't a single list. There are many of various lengths, separated by format and genre. So you have several number one spots. Second, well, as a society, we do read a lot, but we don't actually read that many books. Hmm. So it doesn't actually take as many sales in a given week as you might think to hit the bestseller list. Hmm. An analysis from EPJ Data Science in 2016 found that about half a percent of new hardcover books released each year make it onto one of the NYT bestseller lists. Depending on the list... And what else was published that week, if you've got a Stephen King, if you've got a Pattinson, they're going to top the list for sure, because they sell an order of magnitude at least more in a week than most other books. But in order to make the bestseller list, you had to hit between 1,000 and 10,000 sales in that week. Over the eight-year period covered by their analysis, median weekly sales for the New York Times fiction lists fluctuated between four and 8,000 per week while those that hit the nonfiction lists only required between two and 6,000 in a week, on average. The average book that hit the bestseller list would go on to sell between ten and 100,000 copies throughout its first year. Mm-hmm. But that's still not 
that many units moved, right? You probably won't earn out by then either. <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. An interesting wrinkle here is that time does not actually disclose their methods for assembling their lists. The algorithm, to the extent that it exists at all, is a trade secret. We do know that they use data from both wholesalers and retailers, but it's impossible to assess the quality of that data or determine how exactly they're using it. Since the 80s, however, the Times has admitted that the list is not based solely on arithmetic, hmm. uh, which is good to a certain extent because there are many well-documented ways in which the lists lack mathematical rigor, hmm. including the fact that they count sales apparently from both retailers and wholesalers, meaning that in many cases a single copy that mm -hmm. you take home will have been sold twice. Yeah. Author William Peter Blatty sued the Times in 1983 over the exclusion of his book Legion, which was adapted into The Exorcist III, from the list, stating that its sales numbers relative to others on the list merited its inclusion. The New York Times defended their exclusion of the book with the defense that the list was not factual content, but rather editorial content, <laughs> and was thus protected under the First Amendment. Oh my god. The list What's is, the point? <laughs> it is mostly based on numbers. And we'll get into why it's good for them to have a little bit of editorial control. Mm. Just to just avoid like manipulation by straight up buying your own book or whatever. Well, yeah. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> they just don't exercise that editorial control perhaps as evenly or regularly as they should. Let me tell you something about the New York Times, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> the list is mostly numbers, though, sourced from several places, including sales from bookstores. And as we've seen, numbers that are smaller than you might think. So maybe people aren't reading as many books as they used to. But you know what's a really helpful way to goose those sales? A spot on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say you've got a book, and you want it to be a bestseller. And let's say just for the sake of argument, that your book is total hot garbage. Complete, <laughs> complete gibbering nonsense, cover to cover. What? No, no one would try this, Jem. <laughs> Nothing anyone would actually be interested in buying. Any idea how you might be able to make the list anyway? Make it an NFT? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're skipping to my second segment! <laughs> Brad. <laughs> okay, so you could market it heavily, I suppose. Do the usual press circuit. If you have an existing internet fan base, you could leverage that as aggressively as you can to do your advertising for you or to pre-order the book. And if you're a new author with an existing online presence, your publisher will insist that you do exactly that. Or you could, as Ashlyn alluded to earlier, just buy a few thousand copies for yourself. This is actually a fairly common tactic, especially in conservative politics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They just buy that. copies for everybody and distribute them. Yep. It is easy enough to place large bulk orders for your own book, often at a substantial wholesale discount, then just give them away at conferences or, <laughs> as has been documented, just mail them to Newsmax subscribers, <laughs> thus inflating the sales and hitting the bestseller list. These bulk purchases are often made directly with campaign funds, in fact, oh. which oh. is technically legal sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, so long as the person who wrote the book and is profiting from it is not the direct person the campaign is for, which it often is, oh. but if you launder the money appropriately, blah, 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 blah. Right, blah. right. Anyway. If you have your intern do the order, then it's no longer 
you buying your own book. Well, like if the funds come from the campaign, it's still technically paying yourself. Yeah, but you send it to the super PAC first. (laughs) Yeah. And then you can do whatever you want. (laughs) Politics is broken. (laughs) But the Times, for what it's worth, is usually on the lookout for these kinds of tricks, resulting in an asterisk entry. Actually, I think they usually use a dagger, but with a little (laughs) footnote saying that there were bulk purchases made. And the bestseller list will note that. Or, in some cases, the book will be excluded from the list entirely due to bulk purchases. So in 2015, for example, Ted Cruz published A Time for Truth. (laughs) Let's be real here. I say Ted Cruz published because it is vanishingly unlikely that he actually wrote it. (laughs) But it was published under his name. And I have no (laughs) idea how well the ghostwriter did because I have not read it. (laughs) I love how scathing this is. (laughs) Despite putatively strong sales numbers, Cruz's book did not appear on the list due to, and I'm quoting the Times here, overwhelming preponderance of evidence that the sales were limited to strategic bulk purchases, end quote. So not just the majority of these sales, but basically the whole hog was just (laughs) bulk purchases. Now, Cruz, of course, insists that the Times was lying, but the Times didn't budge. More than one Donald Trump has pulled the same trick. (laughs) (laughs) On publication, The Art of the Deal was launched onto the bestseller list through bulk purchases made by the Trump Organization. And Donald Trump Jr.'s 2019 book, Triggered, made an appearance on the list as well. despite subsequent analysis showing that this was the result of about $100,000 of bulk purchases designed to inflate sales. Jesus. It is heartening to know that a large number of the copies of these books are still sitting in boxes somewhere and or are serving as coasters. That is heartening. I once burned a copy of The Art of the Deal. Nice. (laughs) Before he became president. (laughs) Did you pay for it first, though? No. I stole it from the Thunder Bay Library. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Direct action and work. (laughs) Three weeks from now, you guys will get an invoice. (laughs) (laughs) So, these bulk purchase tactics don't always work. And even if they do, they're going to cost you. We don't all have a spare hundred grand lying around. What? Really? (laughs) Lonnie Sarum probably doesn't have that kind of cash either. She's a former band manager having worked for both Blues Traveler and the Plain White Tees, and more recently has done work as a film extra, appearing uncredited in 2016's Jason Bourne and 2015's Paul Blart Mall Cop 2. (laughs) Those sound lucrative. (laughs) Two is the good one. (laughs) I've never seen a Paul Blart. She had spent several years working on Handbook for Mortals, which she envisioned at the time as a lavish, magical realist film in which she would play the lead role. But it's hard to sell a movie in Hollywood especially if your script isn't based on an existing property, preferably a popular one. Phil Stamper was making waves on Twitter with his continuing investigation into Lonnie Serum. Data from BookScan, which compiles point-of-sale data for the publishing industry, showed Handbook for Mortals selling over 18,000 copies in its first week, which seemed absolutely impossible. As a well-known YA author, Stamper had several Twitter followers who work in bookstores, Some of these stores are New York Times reporters, meaning their sales numbers are used in compiling the bestseller lists. As previously mentioned, bulk orders are flagged by the Times, with a cutoff of about 30 copies being typical. So if a purchaser buys 30 copies at once, that'll be flagged as a bulk order. If they buy 29, it won't. Within a few hours, Phil Stamper had started receiving private messages from booksellers around the country, all reporting odd orders that they had processed over the last week. I'll quote some of them. Quote, 
I work at a bookstore, and we had someone call and ask if we were an NYT reporting store. And then they placed a bulk order for Handbook. He said he was making a movie based on the book, and he didn't care when the books arrived. <laughs> Another one. <laughs> Quote, I got a phone call like this on Saturday night, asking if we were NYT reporting, hoping to ring the order up right away for a future event. Here's another one. He said the books were for an upcoming event, but didn't say when the event would take place. We told him we couldn't confirm a delivery date since the book was showing as out of stock, and would that be a problem for his event? But he said it didn't matter. <laughs> so it looks like all of these orders... I need it now. Oh, it's okay if it never arrives. <laughs> <laughs> we need to process the transaction immediately. I yeah. need to have a receipt. <laughs> so it looks like all of these orders were for fewer than 30 copies. Stamper got confirmation from a reader who works at Barnes & Noble that all three Barnes & Nobles in their city had received calls to place orders for just under 30 copies of Handbook for Mortals. So this certainly sounds like a scam, right? All of these bookstores are reporting massive sales numbers to the Times, but the orders are just small enough to make an end run around that little footnote that the Times would put on its bestseller list indicating that the entry was a result of bulk purchases. But that's still a pretty expensive scam, right? I mean, somebody went to the trouble of ordering more than 18,000 copies of the book. And we're not talking wholesale here, like the Trumps, mm -hmm, right? Right from They're the bookstore. They're ordering retail. retail. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is hundreds of thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. right? So here's the thing. Remember how this all started with Stamper searching Amazon and Barnes & Noble and finding that the book was out of stock? Most retailers will allow you to purchase a book on back order, but if they can't source the book, they can't deliver it. And there were no copies of Handbook to be found. Oh my In god. In fact, it is entirely possible that the number of copies ordered vastly outscript the number of copies actually printed, mm. and any order that can't be fulfilled is eligible for cancellation and refund. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. Because they only track the sale, not what happens to that book <laughs> after the transaction goes through, the order goes through. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's exactly... <laughs> yep. Further investigation revealed that several of the people thanked in the Acknowledgements section of Handbook for Mortals work for Results Source, a marketing firm that specializes in, quote, bestseller campaigns oh on boy. behalf of conservative authors. <gasps> a second, comparatively minor controversy erupted on Twitter when it was discovered that the cover art for Handbook for Mortals was an uncredited ripoff of the knife oh. thrower by magical realist artist Gil Dalmace. Days after, sorry, that should say day after, 23 hours after the furor kicked up by Phil Stamper's investigation, the New York Times issued an updated bestseller list for the week, with The Hate You Give at number one. Lonnie Sarum? was last seen as female passenger number two in the 2020 thriller Adverse, starring Thomas Ian Nicholas. Side note, Sarum used to manage his band. <laughs> Entertainment website and one-time YA publisher GeekNation.com is now defunct. What a good scam. They tried real hard. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you are looking for a good young adult magical book with a believable protagonist who's actually honestly fat is A Dark and Starless Forest by Sarah Hollowell. Just released this year. Cool. Great. Figure I'd give her a plug because she's amazing. <laughs> We're going to move on now to our next scam. 
Laura is going to tell us about the Great Maple Syrup Heist. Laura, Can this sounds like CanCon. Is this Can some Con, Canadian Con, content Can for Con. us? Oh, it sure is. We're it sure meet is. Meet our CRTC obligations. <laughs> well, friends, I'm going to talk to you about something called the Great Canadian Maple Syrup Heist here. And I think most of us are at least somewhat familiar with the story and what went down. I'm not sure if everybody followed the whole thing. I know that when this all happened, it was a thing and it was it dominated the news, but then it fizzled like most things do. It's been covered on several true crime podcasts that I follow. <laughs> yeah, it actually. And there is an episode of the Netflix show, I believe it's called Dirty Money, that covers this as mm. well. So you can look for it on there. As Canadians, what's the thing that we treasure most in this great white north up here? The twin pillars of racism and capitalism. No. Destroying indigenous communities. No. I mean, we like that, but like... Hockey? No, they not took even my that. answers. It's maple syrup. Kim it's maple oh, syrup, okay. right? I hate maple syrup. I hate <laughs> maple flavor. They really do. Okay, Yikes. it's very See, upsetting. I get the whole hating maple flavor thing. Totally get that. But the syrup, I feel, is different. Nope, makes me gag. That's funny. So <laughs> I would have said, what's the difference? Because I grew up on old time is oh, the brand we no. had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I grew up on. That was pancake syrup for me. No, no, like other brands old time was the only one we never believable that it would be that it would be syrup made from pancakes yes <laughs> <laughs> and this cycle continues <laughs> so there was a long period of my life where i would have said eh, maple syrup i don't like maple flavoring like you lauren it's not worth it whatever then i spent a few months living in quebec mm -hmm. and i got to go to a sucrerie and I got to buy cans of maple syrup because it comes in cans there, which is really cool. And they have different grades of it. And I got to taste like dark maple syrup. And that changed things. <laughs> Lauren is just losing it. <laughs> I'm just thinking it comes in pints. <laughs> That's what I heard too. <laughs> oh, I can get you one. You got a whole half already. You fucking nerds. It's <laughs> a good drop. Right. It comes in pints. <laughs> I'm getting one. <laughs> I'm sorry, Laura. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Just imagine Billy Boyd, like, chugging back a can of maple syrup. <laughs> he would do it, too. So gross. What's the matter? Your mama didn't teach you how to chug? Oh, that's, that's really gross. Yeah, I like maple syrup. That's disgusting. That's just... Well, that's something Huxley would do. Yes, it is. But Huxley is five, Jen. <laughs> Not a grown adult that can make reasonable decisions. Anyway, never met a grown adult that can make reasonable decisions. <laughs> fair, fair enough. So maple syrup is something we love here. And it's definitely one of those symbols of Canadiana. If you're going to go to a different part of the world and you're going to bring somebody a gift, maple syrup or maple products are always a good option here. And it makes a lot of sense because Canada produces 79% of the world's maple syrup. And Quebec alone produces 73% of the world's supply. Jeez. So it is, while not strictly Canadian, very Canadian. And unlike many other products, it really can't be grown in a lot of other places. It's really that Southern Ontario can produce it as well, but in only small parts. Quebec, a little bit in New Brunswick. Just think Quebec is like Arrakis. <laughs> the syrup must flow. <laughs> we'll get to that part. <laughs> so it makes sense. It's a regional product. We love our maple syrup. And we want to protect it. And it's so important to us that we have something called the Strategic Syrup Reserve. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Which our backlog. <laughs> which stores about 100 million pounds of syrup at any given time. And it's there to help steady the flow of the sweet stuff here and around the world. Because, as you said, Jim, it must flow. Yeah. This sounds like a joke that Americans would make up about Canadians. Well, as a Canadian, when I heard this on the radio, I said, it is not April Fool's Day. What is happening here? <laughs> yeah, the and strategic maple syrup reserve just doesn't sound like a real thing. It, it sounds very silly. And I will say, in my research for this, I was reading a useful article from Vanity Fair, but it is written by an American who thinks that all of Canada is a joke based on this, I, I gotta say. It does sound like something from Canadian bacon. It really does. It does. Hello, boomer. <laughs> Not that Canada has ever felt that way about Americans, so... It's true. Anyway, so as you've probably guessed, our con today takes place in La Belle Province, Quebec, where this strategic maple syrup reserve is located. It's about a couple hours north, I believe, or I don't know, it's a couple hours outside of Montreal. In 2012, the annual inspection of the stockpile revealed some irregularities in some of the barrels. Notably, that many of them were either full of water or completely empty. It's kind of a problem. <laughs> now, this reserve, while it is near and dear to our Canadian hearts, it's only inspected once a year, and it's not particularly heavily guarded because, well, keep in mind, these barrels are 600 pounds each. So it's not like you can walk in there and just roll it out all by yourself, right? They're pretty hard to move, so they kind of secure themselves, right? And also, who would steal syrup, right? <laughs> and maybe it's not true anymore, but it was my understanding that when this happened, it wasn't like super widely known where this place was. Like it wasn't advertised as the maple syrup reserve. It was just like a warehouse. <laughs> Interesting fact about this. Here's a little bit about what happened. So in Quebec, I need to give you a bit of background here. In Quebec, there is something called the FPAQ, Le Fédération des Producteurs Acéricoles de Quebec. So it's basically a governing body for all producers. So it regulates the production, the sale, it sets quotas for the producers, it regulates the flow to the market and the price. It's like so a wheat if, board, basically. Yeah, it, yeah. It, so if anybody's yeah. familiar with the Canadian wheat board, it's the same sort of thing. If you are going to be selling your maple syrup at, at any volume, so we're not talking about people who just have a few acres in the forest somewhere, but people who want to sell it as an income, you have to go through the FPAQ. It really sounds like we are a socialist country. Weird. And that would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we are just three oil companies stacked up in a trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> that trench coat says socialism, so. Yeah. Sorry, I was just laughing at Jem saying it's like the, the wheat board. And I'm sure that clarified things for like five of our listeners, maybe. <laughs> right. And then the other ones are just like, okay. Hi, <laughs> <Right>. Coyote. <laughs> Get it? Got it. Good. I don't get it. The wheat board, again, it's the same sort of thing. All of the wheat farmers had to sell their wheat through the Canadian wheat board, which then would set the price and set how much was available and so on and so forth. So and this of course is that a, was disbanded. That my story pr stopped. prices fell precipitously. Jesus Christ, Jim. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good God. You have two stories. Let me have this one. <laughs> and I don't need to talk into the mic. I'm talking loud enough. <laughs> I've noticed. Hi, <laughs> Snowflake. Happy family. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to continue telling this story. Thank you. I even went to the trouble of writing full sentences the way that you do this time, and you're interrupting it. 
Go with the flow. Okay. As you've kind of mentioned here, the FPAQ has a lot of control over how maple syrup gets distributed here. And because of this, incidentally, this group is frequently likened to OPEC or the mafia, or just often called a cartel here. And as we've said, is not uncommon in Canada. I have no idea how common this type of thing is in other parts of the world and so on. But in Canada, we definitely have precedent for this type of thing. But especially for Americans reading this story, they keep saying, oh, that sounds like socialism. <laughs> and we're all like, it sounds like socialism. <laughs> Inflection makes all the difference here. It sounds like a block. <laughs> and of course, with any group, with any regulatory body, there is going to be pushback, right? And there are some maple syrup producers who didn't love it. So there was and is a black market for maple syrup here where these sellers are called barrel rollers. So that's the term for people who will buy and sell from producers outside of the FPAQ system. That's so charming. Yeah, it is. It's very cute. So the FPAQ is in charge of this reserve. It's located in Quebec. That makes a lot of sense, right? They have an enormous warehouse. It's about the size of five football fields. So it's quite large, just a couple hours outside of Montreal. Like... And it's not hidden. It's on their website. Now, I oh, don't okay. know if it was well-known at the time. This is about a decade ago that this happened, but it's not hidden now. Mm -hmm. Anybody can go near it. I'm sure they've stepped up security a little bit. <laughs> but at the time, they were also renting warehouse space from a private warehouse owner. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. I would like to do a tangent. Yes. So things are always measured in football fields. And I understand that football fields have those handy markers, so you're supposed to be able to tell how big they are. But I feel like massive things like a giant warehouse should be more in terms of, like, Costco's. How many Costco's is that? I know how big a Costco is because I've walked around one. I've never walked around a football field. But Costco's are different sizes. Listen, Jim. <laughs> Interestingly, when you say football field, if you're talking about a football pitch, those are all different sizes. But and if you're also, talking about a football field, they're all no. And also CFL and NFL football fields yes. are different sizes. What? They're not both 100 yards? No. No. Which one is 100 yards? Is ours 100 meters? No. No, no it's yards. It's still yards. Why? But the width might be different. Like, I don't know if the length is different. I don't know the, enough be, of the differences between... I didn't mean for this to be my town, and I, and I apologize. Balls, it's, fine. <laughs> it's fine. It doesn't matter. We're talking about syrup. Yeah. Tangent over. <laughs> Back to syrup. <laughs> that is fun, though. Anyway, all of this stuff talks about how big it is, and they use football fields. I'm sorry, Ashlyn. You should write to the FPAQ and ask them to use Costco's instead. <laughs> <laughs> There's a great Facebook group called Americans Will Use Literally Anything But The Metric System To Measure things <laughs> it has all kinds of great examples <laughs> that sounds wonderful i should check that out so the problem started almost immediately after this private warehouse was rented it appears that the owner immediately started looking for some barrel rollers to start selling this syrup Ooh. so <laughs> maple syrup that goes through the fpaq is all stored in very distinctive barrels so it's like crude oil barrels those metal barrels that everything is all those liquids are shipped in but they're a distinctive like bluish grayish white color so it's not like any other paint they're all exactly the same so you know if you see that barrel you know what's in it and where it came from there so you can't just take those barrels and go up to somebody else and say here want some syrup because they'll be like uh where'd you get that <laughs> right so they had to hatch a plan he, the warehouse owner, found a barrel roller and they came up with this plan where within his warehouse, they would then siphon out the regulated barrels into their own barrels for transportation. 
And then they refilled the FPAQ barrels with water and just recapped them, left them there. So no harm, no foul, right? <laughs> then they would- Unless there's a s syrup shortage. Right. Then they would truck the maple syrup over to New Brunswick, where they had a third guy who was also a barrel roller and who did not like the FPAQ and liked to buy behind their back, who would then label it as produced in New Brunswick or Vermont or some other non-Quebec place and would sell it legitimately from there. And by all accounts, it sounds like they sold it at similar prices. I can't tell that anybody, like they obviously stole the syrup and made a bunch of money on it, but it doesn't sound like other people got gouged on it. It's, I think it's more so just the FPAQ and that. So this went on as time went on. Eventually, they wanted to scale up their operation. So they really just stopped filling the barrels. <laughs> and it's unclear, looking through the different sources, it's unclear. Some sources say that they actually did make it into the main warehouse and siphoned from those barrels. Other sources say it all happened in this private warehouse. I'm not sure entirely. So you can check through the references and see what you make of it. In any case, they started leaving some barrels empty to just get as much of this going. And that's what tipped people off. So right. what was happening is the inspector came around in 2012, and he was walking on top of a stack of barrels. These things are stacked like six or seven barrels high. I would not want to be on that stack of barrels. But at the same time, with their weight, it's very stable, right? Mm -hmm. So he's walking along. And all of a sudden, a barrel wobbles under him, and he almost falls off this giant stack. And then he's like, wait, this barrel should not wobble. We need to check these barrels. And that's where they discovered it. <laughs> so Such all in all... an easy thing that they could have prevented. Flew well, too close to the sun. Yeah. <laughs> all in all, about 12% of the reserve was stolen. So that's 3,000 tons of syrup. Wow. With <laughs> a market value of almost $19 million was stolen over the course of the year. Is that Canadian? Of course it was. It happened in Canada. Well, but yeah. this could have been... Right. Yeah. Okay, Canadian dollars. So goes down. It depends. 10 what... million American. <laughs> 12, maybe. Dep I think the dollar was better then. It's hard to say. Anyway. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, 10 years ago? Anyway. About, about a decade ago? Yeah, the dollar was almost at parity. Anyway, it was a whole lot. 12% of their reserve. I mean, their reserve is huge, mm -hmm. but... That's a lot of syrup that they were able to move and sell outside of the market. So that's really the Great Canadian Syrup Heist. Interestingly, the trafficker initially stated that, oh, I had no knowledge that this syrup came from outside of the FPAQ system. But he also said, but I don't really love the FPAQ system there. And then he was found to definitely be involved in the process there. And they were, to some degree, laundering some of the syrup through Barrel Roller's own sugar shack up in the mountains to make it seem a little bit more legitimate and things like that. So as of right now, the three main people involved in this have all been fined and or received jail time for it there. You would say they're in a bit of a sticky situation? <laughs> I get it! Lauren... <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, if this wasn't a book or a movie that I was writing, I would have them siphon off the syrup and then sell it back to the same people. That would just be mm, so good. <laughs> <laughs> on a totally different, no, or not a totally different, but like on a little side note epilogue here, the reserve was actually in the news a couple of days ago, at least in American news, because they just released something like 50,000 or 50,000 barrels or something like that into supply because the production was not great last year because of the weather. Hmm. So Because of the drought. Yeah. 
Well, and from not for them so much, but they said it was the short season and the winter wasn't cold enough or something like that. So I don't know what you need in terms of atmospheric conditions for optimal syrup production, but it's in the news if you Google it. So that's a great Canadian syrup heist. I love that this story is about something as simple and basic as syrup. So many times these kinds of stories end up with people getting hurt or real damage being happening. And here it's just like, it's just syrup. (laughs) (laughs) For listeners who might not have grown up using actual maple syrup, give it a try one time. If you're an Aunt Jemima's sort of person or whatever they replaced her with, no, the brand still exists. Yeah, and okay, also in the US, I was reminded that Mrs. Butterworth's is a thing. We don't really oh, okay. have that here. Yeah. Anyway, give some actual maple syrup from Canada or from Vermont or whatever a try. It's, I'd say, it's better on a pancake. I think the best way to have it is when you boil it down and pour it on snow and do the maple, maple taffy, taffy thing. That is the best way to it's have it. It's amazing. Oh, so good. Watch out if you have a tongue ring, though. Remember <laughs> to get unstuck. <laughs> Can almost choke you to death. Yeah. <laughs> Did almost kill me. My hatred of syrup continued. <laughs> I told them they had to try it at Festival when we were there selling. And they did. They were a good sport it. about it. I tried it. We're done. Speaking of sweet stuff, Ashlyn is going to tell us about the cookie stuffing scam. Let's see if I can say it as clearly enunciated as Jem did. A cookie stuffing scam. You can just throw that in wherever I fuck it up. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to sound funny. (laughs) So I have for us today a newfangled yet already outdated scam. Cookie stuffing. Sadly, this segment is mostly not about delicious dessert. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very no, disappointed. Nor is, it, nor is it about some, like, grotesque Thanksgiving turkey tradition. Oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> We're Canadian. We had our Thanksgiving back in October. <laughs> Just thinking of Cookie Crisp and how their mascot was a thief for so many years. <laughs> stealing. The oh, cookies. this is, sorry. This is coming out in December, isn't it? We didn't even think about doing anything. Yeah, Lauren. December really. Yeah, eh, whatever. whatever. Ho, ho, we didn't really last year, yeah. did we? Either. No. 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 Okay, that's fine. Christmas is dead to us. Yeah, <laughs> we're done. We were in a pandemic. Christmas is canceled. After we did July and Christmas, we were out of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Affiliate marketers are people who drive traffic to e-commerce sites such as Amazon and eBay and take a cut when the traffic results in a sale. I find them most often on recipe blogs where the blogger will talk about products they use to make the food. There's usually a disclaimer at the top or bottom mentioning the affiliate links and or the kickback, like, this post may contain affiliate sales links. Please see our disclosure policy for details. And if you click the link to get that really cool bunt pan or bread proofing basket that you saw in their post, the blogger gets a cut of the profit. Ads that you hear on most podcasts, but not ours, consider donating, (laughs) are kind of like a fancy referral link where you go to their special URL or use their discount code. The company knows you were sent there by that podcast and they get some of the profit. So what's the scam? Are recipe bloggers defrauding us? Maybe. (laughs) 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 But certainly... A lot more of them have disclaimers now than they used to. It turns out people feel kind of betrayed when they feel like maybe you manipulated them to make money. Yeah. Please use this brand of butter replacement. Yeah. (laughs) But this scam was a little bit more insidious. 
The scam involved getting all of that sweet, sweet referral money without having to do the work to actually promote eBay, much less any particular product. They created a widget for MySpace that would show where people were looking at your profile from and another widget that would show who had linked to your WordPress site. So obviously these were very popular and the scammers distributed these widgets for free. So they were novelties that got put onto lots of people's pages. What the users didn't know was that they were each helping to implant cookies, little pieces of code that can track where you've been on the internet, in any system that clicked the widget. Nobody ever went to eBay or even thought about eBay due to these widgets, but many of these people inevitably ended up at eBay, and some of them bought stuff. And because of the cookie, eBay thought the scammers had referred the buyers and sent them a small commission. Obviously, this was not what eBay was trying to incentivize, especially when these scammers topped the best-performing affiliate list and took home millions of dollars for very little effort. Eventually, they cooperated with the FBI to get the big names arrested. One of those names was Brian Dunning. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so Brian Dunning was a minor skeptical personality back in the day, and many of you probably recognize his name. Sometimes he still shows up commenting on friends of friends posts on Facebook. Ew. <laughs> and I always had this moment like, do they know? <laughs> he ran, maybe still runs, I didn't look, the Skeptoid podcast, which I used to listen to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. He joined the eBay affiliate marketing program in 2000. The way that he tells it, everyone was doing the same thing. And even though he knew it was wrong and against the terms of service, he figured if everyone did it, why shouldn't he? That doesn't appear to be the whole story, though. <laughs> <laughs> so first, Dunning very clearly tried to hide his tracks. He obscured the cookie stuffing function of the widget with JavaScript so that it wouldn't be obvious to anyone casually looking at the source code. He yeah, that's, that's the thing about all of this internet code. It's all interpreted in the browser. It's not compiled, which means that anyone who's browsing the website can go and look at it and see the whole code, unlike buying a product from Microsoft or whatever where you install compiled code and you can't actually see what's being executed. Mm -hmm. I loved reading code. I don't anymore, but I used to love just reading code on sites. And the fact that the code is interpreted is one of the things that makes it so easy to get around 98% of internet paywalls <laughs> on new sites, if you know what you're doing. Okay, so he tried to hide his tracks. He also made sure the widgets didn't leave any cookies on computers in the cities where eBay had their head offices. And where the affiliate program coordinating company had theirs, at least during business hours. <laughs> he specifically made dance. it during business hours. <laughs> so that nobody like who whose job it was to detect this stuff. Yeah, would get, get one of those cookie. cookies. Yeah. yeah. He also made sure not to leave more than one such cookie on any one PC, since multiple cookies with the same code might raise suspicion. You'd think. <laughs> he also straight up blackmailed a guy who was already running this scam in order to make a better scam. So he threatened to turn in fellow scam artist Sean Hogan for using a cookie stuffing scheme unless he helped Dunning improve his own code. Dunning was jealous that Hogan was suddenly making much more money than him. What Hogan had discovered was a way to make a one by one pixel invisible image on a website or in the widget that would send traffic directly to eBay without the user being any the wiser. So eBay thought they were getting a ton of like great referrals from this invisible pixel, but nobody was ever actually seeing eBay. And this didn't involve anybody actually clicking on the widget, as far as I could tell. You just had to see this invisible pixel, which is pretty wild. Yep. 
So eventually, eBay figured out a way to determine which of the traffic coming from Dunning and Hogan's links was legitimate. Also using an invisible GIF. Fine. Invisible GIF in a way I do not understand. And determined that 99% of it was fake, was just totally made up. Nobody thought about eBay during any of those transactions. Mm -hmm. Long story short, after Dunning was convicted to 15 months in jail, he put out this absolutely amazing statement about how the whole thing was a conspiracy. C-O-N. Spiracy? (laughs) Yep. That eBay was in on it the whole time. And in particular, certain executive K that would step in for him when things got dicey with the company that ran the affiliate program. So he claimed to have all these incriminating screenshots of emails that were not used in court for some reason. Mm -hmm. So maybe his lawyers didn't find them credible. (laughs) And all of the really incriminating stuff, of course, was set over a cell phone. So there's no paper trail. But he assures us that it happened. And that eBay was totally in on helping him get around this because they thought that it was delivering also good travel. Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would eBay be, like, it's very possible that some eBay executives were getting kickbacks, and so they were also defrauding eBay. That's possible. But eBay, well, first of all, eBay as an organization doesn't care about anything. It's a mindless automaton that craves profit. Give me all your money! Because that's how it was designed to function. But (laughs) it doesn't make any sense. So he put out this statement and he laid out a gish gallop of lies and misleading statements about his whole scheme. <laughs> I love how she's being so, like, intentionally inflammatory about Dunning. Like, like <laughs> using anti-skeptical, like, yeah. terminology. Well, I, I yeah. had help because after he put out this statement, the skeptic community that we have grown to understand is trash. Just ate Not it you, up. dear listener. <laughs> Most of them are trash. We have Not grown the listeners. the listeners, Ashlyn. <laughs> the l- we have few enough the as leaders, it is. The leaders. We don't need to alienate them. <laughs> the leaders, the most prominent voices. The let's community put it that way. has gone in directions I do not agree with. But the but not the ones who listen to our podcast. <laughs> you have to butter them up. I will not. <laughs> anyway, the skeptic community at the time ate up this statement. It was ridiculous and amazing to see people look at this pile of garbage and go oh yeah it's very reasonable always knew he was a good guy he clearly didn't intend any harm nothing bad happened so here are a few points he calls his brother and himself quote two corporations that merged to form this what did they call it kessler's flying circus which is abbreviated to kfc which is conveniently hilarious (laughs) so yeah these are the two corporations that merged to become this umbrella corp that made this affiliate program He repeatedly talks about the other employees at the company in a way that is clearly intended to minimize his role. The other employees, or at least the people on the payroll, were himself, his brother, his mother, (laughs) his his wife. His wife got 10 grand a month for doing nothing, as far as anyone can tell. Pretty good deal. But they took care of their mother, Ashlyn, so they're good guys. And he talks a lot about the overhead that he incurred while working out of his home. It's a lot of overhead in podcasting. Yeah, so he like he tries to make it sound like he didn't make a lot of money out of this. Like he put away some money for college for his kids and his home. Quite a nice home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a good home. They had so one of the articles that I read had floor plans of both of these guys' houses just to be like, yeah, they made money. <laughs> <laughs> the one guy, the other guy, Hogan? Hogan had this incredible living room that was like a circle of windows. I want that. (laughs) (laughs) 
but I, I probably aren't. I'm not smart enough to defraud eBay. <laughs> Either was he ethical <laughs> enough not to? Well, I mean, he eh, yeah, exactly. So maybe you're going to get into this, but like, I don't care if you defraud eBay personally. What I care about is the fact that, like, eBay is paying the same amount of money in a lot of cases. But what Dunning was doing was like replacing cookies that would be affiliate links for other people in a lot of cases. So you click on that cooking blog thing and you pay Dunning instead of the blogger who actually referred you. My very next sentence is. He also claims there was no one harmed by it. Yeah. <laughs> Both Rebecca Watson and Jason Thibault wrote great pieces at the time going through his claims one by one, and I'll link those in the show notes. They are both definitely worth a read. But I was going to make the point that Jem made so eloquently that there were people who lost out on here, people who were playing by the rules of the affiliate program, promoting their products and lost out on the tiny commission they could have got out of each of those sales because one of Dunning's widgets got to that user first or in a lot of cases would replace ones that were already like legitimately there. Dunning himself admits that before he started cheating, he was making only a few hundred dollars a month. So he stole the rest of the millions he was paid from people who were just trying to earn a few bucks selling their magic collection or grandma's antiques. So Brian Dunning is scum. End of segment. <laughs> Did he, was he ordered to pay back any money? He apparently reached a settlement with eBay in which he paid them back, I think it was $400,000, which was what the feds could prove was for sure gotten illegally, but like almost all of it had to be. Like I said, he was making a few hundred dollars a month. That's what he should have gotten to keep. <laughs> yeah. Did he keep the house? I don't know. I'm sure he did. Yeah, he yeah. did go to jail for 15 months. Yeah. And he had somebody replace him on his podcast for a while while yeah. he was in jail, and then he came back and did his victory lap on SGU and like that. That was around the time I stopped listening. Yeah, yeah. I Why stopped listening to SGU the day they had Shermer on. So I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah, I don't need to listen to Mr. Bicycle Shorts. <laughs> I'm a gold star. I've never listened. <laughs> That's not true. You've definitely been in the car with me. I've never intentionally listened. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> there was no active listening going on yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> I was probably playing some sort of bit game on my phone. Like, there, there are definitely worse things, and people are complex. But I was disappointed when I learned about this, but I was not surprised. I had had a few, like, moments of cognitive dissonance with Dunning. Like, one um, of the first six photos, I think, that I uploaded to Facebook when I joined Facebook, a bunch of them were from TAM 8, mm. that Laura and I went to, the amazing meeting. And I met Brian Dunning. I have a picture with him. I met DJ Grothy. I have a picture of him. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, <laughs> he didn't know. No, mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't know. But DJ Grothy also. But Jem, same tangent. Adam Savage turned out to be okay. Jesus Christ, Jem. But I had, so, like, he seemed, like, nice enough when I met him. But I had, and I've been listening to his podcast for a while, but there were a few episodes that, like, just, I'm like, I, that doesn't seem right. He Like, his Silent Spring episode mm -hmm. was very dismissive of claims of environmentalists mm -hmm. <laughs> and used a bunch of kind of, like, obviously right-wing talking points that fell apart when you looked at the actual details of what was going on. And so I had been sort of primed to be a little bit more skeptical of Dunning. And then when this happened, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. story checks out, I guess. <laughs> I've been trying this whole segment to try and make a Kruger joke to go with Dunning. Mm. But it just didn't fit. Nothing yeah. worked. So you're just getting the bare bones of it, folks. <laughs> Assemble your own joke from these pieces. Yeah. <laughs> Assemble. Dunning. Kruger. I was born in a small town. 
You got the sticky situation. You're not getting anything else. (laughs) (laughs) Even for a skeptic, he always just seemed insufferably smug. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and the nature of the podcast, I don't know if it's still going on or not, but it was relatively short, especially compared to a lot of podcasts now. So it was meant to be like your bite-sized roundup. This is all you need to know, and I'm right. What can I say except you're welcome? What is a short podcast i know i know we we have never explored this territory but i hear they exist (laughs) it is hilarious because they were like five to ten minutes long (laughs) honestly to be able to make like four hundred dollars a month off a five to ten minute podcast that's pretty good like that would have to be a lot of listeners and a lot of click through making and things like money that. from podcasts <laughs> yeah we're in the hole every episode <laughs> okay but I we have fun we do have fun i'm not sure that our listeners like our self-deprecation as much as we do okay <laughs> <laughs> let us know listeners send us an email well, like yeah we're in the hole because we don't run ads and we do this as a fun thing that we enjoy doing and we don't this isn't for making money this is a passion project for us we all have other avenues for that this is totally on my cv though (laughs) (laughs) well like like it's a good thing to do i think like i enjoy the time that we do it but i think that we are providing a service i don't know maybe i'm blowing smoke but if you want to check out my personal patreon and give me money for like cool stickers that i send out every month or also beads but stickers stickers are affordable and everybody loves them patreon.com slash noble (laughs) whimsical I should totally make an ad that is just for noble women. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, amazing. Are we done dishing on... I'm done with dunning. Thanks for that, Ashlyn. Next up we have Lauren, who's going to tell us all about Mark Hoffman and the Salamander Letter. I love stories of harmless, inconsequential intrigue, especially forgery stories. I love tales of smart grifters taking down big corporations or governments and getting away with a wink and a grin. You know, like leverage. (laughs) This is not one of those stories. (laughs) Mark Hoffman was a wickedly talented forger. So much so that we don't know how much of his rare document business was real and how much was forged. (laughs) I mean, the big ones that have been caught. The Salamander Letter, the Anthon Transcript, and the Blessing of Joseph Smith III. Those are the three I'm going to talk about today. But there are still more out there, to be sure. Some of our listeners may have seen the recent Netflix docuseries about Hoffman called Murder Among the Mormons, which tells you right in the title that this is not going to have a happy ending. (laughs) (laughs) Because in addition to his talents as a forger, Hoffman liked to build bombs. (laughs) Wow. Fun hobby. (laughs) It was a hobby he picked up as a teenager. Hoffman dealt most of his forgeries inside the Mormon church, having been raised in the faith. He says he became an atheist around age 14, but continued to practice Mormonism to appease his parents. During his mission in Bristol, England in the mid-1970s, Hoffman poked around bookshops and collected both early Mormon writings as well as books that critiqued the church. Post-mission, Hoffman returned to Utah, enrolled in university, and got married. However, he says that by this time he was already an adept forger claiming his first big piece was to forge a rare mint mark on a dime when he was a teenager, and apparently that mark was accepted as genuine by a group of coin collectors. In 1980, Hoffman claimed that he had found a 17th century version of the King James Bible with, shock, a piece of paper inside. (laughs) While others may have said, woo, free bookmark, Hoffman 
Hoffman knew that there was something special about this paper. It was the famed Anthon Transcript, a holograph by Joseph Smith, where he wrote down a bunch of the reformed Egyptian hieroglyphs that were purportedly on the golden plates that he used to transliterate the Book of Mormon. And and then he still used it as a bookmark, though, right? (laughs) (laughs) Totes. For those who don't know, a holograph is something that can be purported to be in the author's own hand. Ah. So it's like an autograph, but other things in your name. A short aside, there is far too much about Joseph Smith and Mormonism to explain here. (laughs) And honestly, he could have just have his own segment in this grifters show. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one day I'll go into it. But for now, know that this document had a lot of Latter-day Saints losing their shit. (laughs) The LDS Church had it appraised for $20,000 in 1980 money and bought it from Hoffman for a gold coin, rare banknotes issued by the church when Utah was founded, hmm. and a first edition of the Book of Mormon. Not the musical. <laughs> <laughs> Hoffman used the money to become a dealer in rare books, while using the back of the shop as his forging station. You may be laughing to yourself right now about the silly Mormons not properly authenticating the Anthon letter, but they did. Document historians both inside and outside of the church deemed it authentic. Hoffman was just really good. After the initial fervor over the Anthon transcript, Hoffman presented the LDS Church with more documents, some real and some forged. These documents presented church history in a favorable light. And then he hit them with the Joseph Smith III blessing, which, if circulated outside of the church, would put the Mormons and their entire history in a very bad light. In summary, the blessing was another document by Joseph Smith, this one saying that he gave his blessing to his son, Joseph Smith III, because the founder of Mormonism was a junior. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just he had a couple of kids and named them both Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave him his blessing to be the next prophet of the LDS Church. Ipso facto, Brigham Young was an illegitimate prophet, and ipso facto, Etirum, so were all prophets who succeeded him. In the cover letter to this blessing, credited to Thomas Bullock in 1865, Young had all copies of this blessing destroyed, but Bullock was keeping his for contingency. Yeah. <laughs> Hoffman thought this letter would be another big payday from the LDS Church and would, quote, they would buy this blessing on the spot and bury it. Mm -hmm. Church didn't like the price, however, and Hoffman tried to then sell it to the reorganized Church of Latter-day Saints. Oh. Yeah. For whom JS3 was the real deal all along. Maybe because he was the one who founded it. (laughs) (laughs) A skirmish between the two sects occurred. And the New York Times got involved, which forced the big LDS church to buy the letter and then publicly present it to the RLDS church. (laughs) (laughs) No one can know for certain what is in another person's heart. But according to people much more informed than I about the events and Mark Hoffman's thoughts, it was the forged blessing that made Hoffman realize that he could get a lot more flies with vinegar Mm. than with any amount of honey. He allegedly abandoned plans to make forgery that the LDS church would celebrate and turned to making more forgeries that would hurt them if they didn't buy and hide them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, amazing! I love love a solid forger-slash-extortionist. Like, why why try to hope somebody does something terrible so you can extort them? Why not forge evidence they did something terrible and extort them anyway? (laughs) So maybe I missed it earlier, but... Did he have some sort of, like, grudge against them pre-existing, or did he just figure money? He was raised a Mormon. Okay. And... That's enough. Yeah. (laughs) He apparently lost his faith at around age 14 when he found out that his grandparents were secretly polygamous, and he became an atheist. Oh, all right. 
So he just really wanted to spend his life getting money from and torturing the LDS church. I mean, mood. (laughs) (laughs) So we were talking about this buying them and burying them. Much like how I mentioned in an earlier episode, I can't remember which one, that I want a couple of days in the Vatican archival basement where Mm -hmm. they hide all their stuff. I want a couple of days in the Salt Lake City archival basement too. (laughs) I just want to see what's there. (laughs) Hoffman spent the rest of the early 80s presenting more forgeries to the LDS church and making money, which he promptly spent because, well, it was the early 1980s. In 1984, Hoffman presented the church with a salamander letter, his best known and last big forgery. If I wasn't explicit about it, both of the ones I've spoken about in this segment were also fakes. I first heard of the Salamander Letter watching old Bill Curtis true crime shows on A&E in the late 1990s and early 2000s. (laughs) And, like middle-aged dads who only listen to classic rock stations, I keep coming back to it. (laughs) The letter was supposedly written by Martin Harris, Smith's scribe for his translations, and it gives a different story than the official one for the translation of the Book of Mormon. Again, not the musical. Long story short... The letter says that when Smith dug up the plates, a white salamander appeared instead of the angel Moroni. The salamander refused to give Smith the plates unless his brother Alvin was also there. (laughs) Trouble was, Alvin was already dead. Hoffman tied this to a rumor that Smith and his family dug up Alvin's grave to use his remains in a magical ritual. Wow. He took a leap on this one here. But was that already an existing rumor for some reason? Yeah, that was already an existing rumor that had been floating around for about 100 years. Well. So he's just backdating all of these, Mm -hmm. trying to make all the canon make sense. Well, when you tie it into the mythology, like I'm Mm -hmm. sure that hooks more people, right? That Mm -hmm. makes it seem more plausible. Yeah. Also, in an anti-Mormon book from 1834, the author claimed that a toad or toad-like creature appeared to Smith around the time that he found the plates. If I'm gonna eat somebody, it might as well be you. Therefore, the salamander, again tied into the mythology. Document examiners initially declared the letter authentic, but some in the LDS church questioned that when it was compared to letters known to actually be written by Martin Harris. The church chose not to buy it, and after several other buyers also turned it down, Hoffman sold it for $40,000 in 1984 to a private collector who was going to have it authenticated and then donated to the church. (laughs) This did not go well. (laughs) Based on inconsistencies within the folds in the paper the letter was written on, the examiners declared the letter a forgery. Ooh, paper folds. (laughs) There is a whole big thing about it. It's fascinating. (laughs) But here's where Hoffman started to panic. I don't know that for certain, but here's where his panicking started to bring the whole forgery scheme down around him. Mm. He attempted to broker a sale of the McClellan collection, the writings of an early breakaway from the LDS church. But honestly, who would buy a rare document collection from someone under suspicion of forging rare documents? (laughs) (laughs) Hoffman didn't have the McClellan collection either, or the time that he thought he had to forge a version of it. He was deep in debt from his lifestyle and from buying actual first editions. So he uh, turned back to his other teenage passion. Bombs! That's right. Making bombs. When when a bomb is on the mantelpiece in the first act. Yeah. (laughs) Chekhov's bomb. But it's not a happy ending. So as I also alluded to. On October 15, 1985, 
One of Hoffman's bombs killed document collector Stephen Christensen, and another one killed Kathy Sheets, who was married to Christensen's former employer. Hoffman set these bombs to look like the fallout from a bad business deal between Christensen and Gary Sheets, and the police followed that lead for about a day. (laughs) The next day, another bomb went off in Hoffman's car, severely injuring him. Other collectors thought Hoffman was also a target, and they went into hiding, but police started focusing on Hoffman. During the investigation, police discovered Hoffman's forgery lab. Previously authenticated documents were then discovered to be forgeries. They had all been authenticated by different experts, and no one had noticed the similarities before. It was 1984. People didn't like have the internet to look at all these different mm-hmm. things together. Mm-hmm. The coolest thing was the Iron Gall ink. Hoffman had made it himself, and it cracked and looked like alligator skin under a microscope. Iron Gall ink from the 19th century didn't do that. Something about the water used to create it? Like when it's done with modern water, it crackles mm. underneath, like my, on a microscopic level? Right. Mm. But it was smooth back when the in the 19th century. Interesting. Fluoridated water strikes again. <laughs> <laughs> a poem used to authenticate the handwriting in the salamander letter also deemed to have been a forgery. <laughs> but it was inserted into a real copy of a book of common prayer owned by a descendant of Martin Harris. So he went to these people's house, inserted a leaf into their book to authenticate the handwriting for the thing he was about Amazing. to forge to the, to the church. Mm-hmm. In January 1986, Hoffman was arrested and charged with the murders, fraud, and with making explosive devices. Facing the death penalty, Hoffman eventually pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and two counts of fraud for his forgeries. He was sentenced for five years to life with a recommendation that he never be released. He is still in prison in Utah today. He was also officially excommunicated from the LDS Church. <laughs> you don't say. In a final twist of irony, Hoffman attempted to kill himself by overdosing on antidepressants. He was revived, but spent 12 hours lying on his right arm, causing severe atrophy and permanently disabling his forging hand. Isn't that Oh my gosh. That is something. I have another question. Mm -hmm. The one that went off in his car, was he trying to just make it look like he was innocent? Like, clearly he can't be the bomber, or was it a fuck-up? That was a fuck-up. Yeah, that sounds like a, (laughs) I didn't make it there on time! (laughs) Yeah, he was driving down the highway, and the bomb just went off in the seat beside him. Because, you know, amateur bomb makers. (laughs) He was better at forging than he was at bombing. (laughs) Yeah, because if you want to make it look like you're a target... You also bomb some of the other collectors. Yeah. Well, and that's what the collectors thought were happening, but then. Yeah. Yeah. Authorities he didn't get were there like, oh, yet. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what he was trying to do. Who knows? But that is Mark Hoffman and the Salamander Letter. Wow. So I know we watched the documentary together. You and I told you it, yes. earlier, I did not remember any of it. But as you were telling it, I remembered some like scenes and I feel like you did a way better job of explaining it than the documentary did. You were really excited about the Iron Gall Inc. thing. Yeah, that sounds legit. Yeah. <laughs> we rewind, rewound and I guess it's not called rewinding anymore. I don't know. Skip Yeah, back. there's nothing to wind. <laughs> yeah. There we hasn't went, been anything to yeah. wind for a long time. <laughs> you were kind of napping and then you went, wait, ink. I like ink. And we went back <laughs> to it. Tell me more about the ancient ink. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Lauren. That's fascinating. (laughs) 
So th this is where I think we would transition to something nice, but instead we're talking, Jim wants to rant. We're talking yeah, I about know. scams. <laughs> Quickly. <laughs> and there's something that everybody's talking about these days, and that is NFTs. Do you guys want me to talk about NFTs for a little bit? <laughs> How brief can you be? Well, what do you want to know about NFTs? <laughs> the, well, the five minute version. Yeah. Let, let's do skeptoid length here. Let's practice. <laughs> I spend a lot of my time on Twitter. I know about NFTs. Yeah. So I think like not everybody does, right, no. though. Good idea. Don't spend all your time on Twitter. <laughs> Good call. So for listeners who aren't aware, an NFT, is, NFT stands for non-fungible token. It's an initialism. And that's contrasted with fungible tokens, meaning tokens that have a shared value structure that can be exchanged for each other, like cryptocurrency. So Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin or whatever. But NFTs are related to cryptocurrency because the ledger that tracks NFTs, non-fungible tokens, is the same ledger structure and often the same ledger itself that is used to make cryptocurrency. So basically an NFT is just, they'll say it's a proof of ownership. But if you buy an NFT, a lot of people will say, well, you're buying this JPEG. You're not, you're not buying a JPEG. What you're buying essentially is a little tag that goes on, you're buying the receipt for a JPEG, <laughs> essentially. And you're buying a little tag that goes in the blockchain that says, a person with this number owns this JPEG, or <laughs> music video, or whatever it is that you bought. Right? So it's a public proof of ownership. It's like a plaque, a little plaque that displays your name. A but bunch of the first ones were like sports clips, right? I feel you know, like I remember I'm not that. sure. But there are a lot of problems with <laughs> NFTs, as many listeners are probably familiar with, so I'll try not to belabor the point. But the thing is, you're not buying the JPEG, because the ownership of digital products is not something that is really analogous to the ownership of physical products, right? Who, honestly, who gives a shit if you own a JPEG? It's not like a coffee table or a sandwich or a house. A JPEG is infinitely reproducible by anyone for essentially zero cost. <laughs> right click and save. <laughs> ownership of digital goods isn't meaningfully the same in, as ownership of physical goods, because if this is my sandwich and I'm hungry, you stealing my sandwich is like a zero sum game. If you steal my sandwich, I can't eat the sandwich. But if you steal my JPEG, I can still eat the JPEG, right? <laughs> How do I make a JPEG a sandwich? <laughs> If you steal my JPEG of a uh, purple marmoset smoking a joint or whatever it is. Just saying um, ugly monkey. All they yeah. have are ugly monkeys. They're apes. They're not monkeys. Monkeys aren't apes. Can we stop? Doesn't matter. Okay. It, it does, but if you steal it, it doesn't affect me in the slightest. It doesn't prevent me from doing anything with a JPEG that I could already do with a JPEG, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not... The JPEG, when we're talking about JPEGs because there are a lot of NFTs these days that are just really ugly, procedurally generated images of lions or apes. Why? Because they're cheap and easy and made by an algorithm. And they're, yeah, they, infinitely, they, infinitely different combinations. I, yes. I don't understand the internet. <laughs> Nor should you. Good. No. Reddit sucks. God, yes. So the blockchain doesn't store the JPEG. The blockchain is basically like an endless receipt of every single transaction that was ever done with a cryptocurrency, like Ethereum. Many NFTs are also st stored on the Ethereum blockchain now. 
So it is an ever-growing list of every transaction that has ever happened, basically. And it also includes every transaction that everybody has exchanged an NFT on it, assuming that NFT is tracked on that blockchain. So it doesn't actually store the JPEG. That would be inefficient. It stores, like, essentially a URL that points to the JPEG. But that URL can still go offline, so you can have paid a lot of money for this JPEG, and then that JPEG isn't actually there anymore. You can also add another, you can pay some gas fees and add another block in the Ethereum blockchain that points to a different, but actually identical copy of that NFT. There's nothing stopping you from doing that. (laughs) The only thing is gas fees on Ethereum, basically. And there's nothing to stop anyone from going to that URL and just downloading the image right? Anything that is viewed on your computer is downloaded to your computer because that's how the internet works. Sometimes for videos and music, it's downloaded a little piece at a time, so your computer may not have (laughs) the whole piece at any one time, but it's really easy to store that. Anyway, what I'm saying is NFTs are absurd, (laughs) and anyone involved in them should recognize that absurdity. But there are other problems too, most of them ecological, in the sense that Ethereum and most other blockchains are what are called proof-of-work blockchains. So the way they validate ownership is not there's a single place that's a single point of failure that says this is a valid transaction, this is not a valid transaction. There is sort of a consensus reached among a bunch of distributed users. But that is fragile to botnets, right? You don't want somebody to just be able to create a swarm of things that are sycophantically sock-popping, yes, this is a valid transaction, and allow somebody to claim ownership of something they don't own. So what you, you hear have that, to Dunning? do... You can't yeah. do it. <laughs> what you have to do in order to prove that you own something is do a little piece of work, essentially. Do a little piece of nonsense make-work computation that proves that you have, like, a stake Technically, proof of stake is different. I'm mm. getting into the weeds here. Yes. <laughs> but basically, cryptocurrency and NFTs, blockchains, proof of work blockchains are intentionally inefficient because that is how they are resilient against people gaming the system. But that intentional inefficiency makes them extremely expensive in terms of computation and in terms of electricity which is compounding global shortages in computational equipment used for, like, people playing video games, but also used for, like, medical equipment and car manufacturing, (laughs) further gumming up the supply chain issues that we're seeing with COVID, and also contributing to global warming in a significant degree. So, NFTs. They're not a scam in the traditional sense, but there are a bunch of scams and essentially pyramid schemes floating around, especially if you are on Discord at all, that end up amounting to investment scams that are really fun to look into. I know a lot of the YouTubers that I follow, in particular Dan Olson, has been promising to talk about NFTs for a while, so I'm looking forward to his videos on the subject. But one of the cool things that popped up in my Twitter feed recently was that somebody trawled the Ethereum blockchain, found every single NFT link, downloaded them all, because that's something that's easy to do, and created a pirate bay for NFTs. So anyone who (laughs) wants to download every single NFT in existence can now do so. (laughs) And of course, crypto bros will say that they didn't steal the NFTs, because the blockchain will substantiate that these people own them. But as we said before, who gives a shit? (laughs) There was also a fun thing that popped up recently where a DOA, which is a 
don't need to get into what a DOA is, but basically a group of people pooled their money together in the form of Ethereum, a bunch of small transactions to buy a copy of the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, few I heard about copies. that. So they all spent millions of dollars collectively. Maybe, was it hundreds of thousands? Was it millions? It doesn't a matter. A lot of money. They all spent a lot of money. Collectively pooled their money. A lot of the donations were in the hundreds of dollars range. They pooled their money to collectively buy this copy of the Constitution that was up for sale on Sotheby's. Sotheby's. So- Sotheby's. 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 Yeah. That was up for sale on Sotheby's. And they were very excited and they were issuing NFTs to represent Technically, it wasn't an ownership stake because that's not quite how it works, but it was essentially you will have votes according to your ownership stake as to where this constitution will be displayed and what should be done with it and like that. And it was all organized very quickly. People spent lots of money and Mm -hmm. a lot of this money got poured into the Ethereum blockchain. Now, transactions on the blockchain are expensive. Ethereum uses something called gas, which is a way of like measuring computation fees. And so you have to pay transaction fees that they call gas in order to do transactions on the Ethereum blockchain, because these transactions being distributed are incredibly inefficient, as we just discussed Mm -hmm. on purpose. And no one rides for free. No one rides for free. So you would spend $800 for this ownership stake and $700 would end up at the people who are doing the auctioning. What ended up happening is they didn't quite win the auction. (laughs) So they then have all of this money on hand that they got outbid by a billionaire. So they didn't get the Constitution. They're like, well, now we have all this money. What do we do? Well, we'll refund everybody. But of course, refunds are another transaction on the Ethereum blockchain. So what ends up happening is people (laughs) pay all of this money, pay a bunch of gas fees, get nothing for it, then get their money refunded, once again through Ethereum, paying transactional gas fees, and a lot of people ended up you know, having spent hundreds of dollars for nothing and getting like 20 to $30 back Whoa. at the end of it. Yeah. That is a big cut. A couple Whoa. people who made small donations ended up in the red yeah. after their refund <laughs> because oh. of the gas fees. Oh, yikes. How, like, these gas fees sound like extortion. <laughs> Well, yeah, like it is a means of like people are looking at ways to make blockchain less terrible for the environment. It is the the joke that goes around is that when you buy an NFT of the Mona Lisa, you're not buying an NFT of the Mona Lisa. You're buying a little tag that says that you own the nameplate to the Mona Lisa and you are allowed to show people that. And they'll say, OK, where's the Mona Lisa? And you say it's it's still over there <laughs> in the Louvre. So it is intentionally inefficient, and people are trying to talk about ways of making it less environmentally harmful. But it's not a bug, it's a feature. That's how they do their thing. You can look at proof of stake instead of proof of work, but that is still very, it's less computationally expensive, but it's still computationally expensive. And a lot of the ways NFTs are used, like Ethereum, ends up being a small number of markets are controlling the wallets and controlling the transactions. So, I don't know. It's a silly thing. It's a silly place, the internet. I wouldn't waste your time on it. Let's move on to something nice.
That's just bonkers. My something nice is I didn't have to read the 147 tweet thread of the guy whose wife left him with the children after he spent all their life savings on getting a loan and buying an NFT of a really ugly lion. It turned out to be satire, but he wrote a 147 tweet thread, which basically just said everything Jem just said. <laughs> that's too many tweets. That's Especially for satire. I don't know. Yeah, that's too much commitment to a bit. My actual something nice is... I'm just going first because I was talking. Sounds good. Do it. <laughs> I have two in memoriams, which are doesn't sound like a something nice, but it is. I want to thank both Stephen Sondheim, who, as of this recording, we found out passed away yesterday at the age of 91. I want to thank him for all of the music of my teen years. And I can't sing a single song of his because my voice doesn't work like that. And that's probably for the best. And I would also like to thank Lexa, our 16-year-old cat who passed away last week. And she gave us many loves. And there was only about five people in the world she would let close to her. And we were very lucky to be three of them. So That's a lovely something nice. Yeah. And years with my baby. Yeah. Those are both, both very meaningful. Mm -hmm. Something's nice. Also, shout out to UMFA. Keep holding the line. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody who also has to negotiate with their union with the province. Not looking forward to it, but keep holding the line. Local jokes. Local yeah. work. <laughs> It'd be nice. Hopefully the strike will be resolved to Umpha's satisfaction. Hopefully yeah. the, the province and university will cave as soon as possible. We're on day 21. Oof. Yeah. I'll go next. I object to calling it Umpha. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> My something nice is a podcast that I started listening to called Stuff the British Stole. <gasps> I oh, love that show. show. It's really good. <laughs> it's really, really enjoyable. And it I'm learning a lot about different things or more about things that I already knew some about. And it's really well put together. It's very engaging. And it's really important, I think, that it makes me feel bad for being largely English, <laughs> but that's not my fault. But it's, yeah, it just helps us look at things a lot more globally. I, there's lots of things that do, but I think they do a really great job and it's really accessible. So listen, this it's on, it's or the second season is released. And it, again, CanCon, the second season is done in conjunction with CBC, which is awesome. generally a really good podcast maker. So. But the guy is Australian, so he has a cool accent. Yes. <laughs> yes. My Something Nice this month is Echoes of the Eye, an expansion to, I gotta say, my favorite game of all time, Outer Wilds. Not to be confused with the Outer Worlds, which was fine. Outer Wilds came out in 2019, and it was a game that got me through studying for the uh, MCAT. If a game could be said to have done that, I mean, obviously, there are lots of things that provide us comfort in dark days. And obviously, my family was first among those. But... I was going to say, your wife is sitting right there, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> but Outer Wilds was the game that sort of, it was like the way that I relaxed while I was prepping for the MCAT. And it's just a wonderful game about exploration and discovery. And the expansion to it came out just this year, and it was hard to imagine how they could have sort of fit an expansion to that game into the existing narrative, because the narrative is very clockwork. Mm. Everything in that world fits together precisely, and it's hard to know where an extra piece could be. 
And the way they did that, I think, was very good, and I adored the expansion. However, it <laughs> did get a little spooky at times. <laughs> and I am not a I'm not somebody who likes I, I like 80s schlock horror, as problematic as it can get, but I am not a fan of like horror writ large these days. That's like me. I like Grindhouse. I hate torture porn. Yeah, I, and I'm I, like, I don't mind like a horror film, but I don't play horror games. And this definitely had some spooks and scares in it in a way that was unexpected coming from Outer Wilds, which did have some scary moments in it, but was largely a very, I found anyway, like cerebral, but also like emotionally satisfying series of epiphanies and series of emotional beats and series of discoveries. And this had that, too, in spades. But it also had some scary bits. Luckily... <laughs> uh, Just in case you weren't sure, there yeah. were some scary parts in here. The developers did put in, like, a low scares mode for oh, people that's who good. have trouble with that stuff. I did not use it because I my brain is broken in just such a way that I need to force myself to play through it in the as intended experience. That's not something that I recommend. It is just something that I deal with. But like the game is, it is just lovely. It is the most satisfying narrative experience, I think, that I've ever had playing those games, that game. Like this is essentially a sequel sort of as mm -hmm. a DLC. So if you are interested in that kind of meditative experience, and you can handle navigating a 3D space, which I know that's not for everybody, I recommend giving Outer Wilds a try, especially since there are probably all sorts of holiday sales coming up, and I'm sure that the base game will at least be on sale for it. It's supposed to come out on the Switch at some point, but it hasn't yet, so <laughs> give Outer Wilds a try. And Echoes of the Eye was sort of a lovely coda to that story, I think. Cool. Did I talk about the Wheel of Time show as my Something Nice last month? You did. <laughs> okay, I'm going to talk about it again anyway. So, last month, I was excited about watching the Wheel of Time series. This month, I have watched it, at least the first four episodes, and they were surprisingly good. I yelled a few times. I was mad. But I'm overall very happy with it. Yeah, we all, we all yelled at that moment halfway through the first episode. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. all know the one we mean. <laughs> Anybody who's read the books. <laughs> I, I read some explanations for it from several people, including Brandon Sanderson. And it's exactly what I thought the motive was. And I still think it's a bad choice. Yep. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's beautiful. I want to cosplay as Maureen real bad. Mm -hmm. It's so diverse. And... At least at our watch party, it seemed to be comprehensible to people who hadn't read the books. <laughs> and that is what I've heard online as well. So even if you are not a fan of the novels or you could never get into them because they're incomprehensibly long, give it a shot. It's good. Yeah. I've enjoyed it as somebody who read the read all of the novels as they came out and then reread them and reread them because I was that kind of kid. And as somebody who's moved on from the novels uh, yeah. quite a long time ago, yeah, I've been enjoying it. It's kitschy, but fun. Yeah. What was that Sanderson quote that you had said that really summed it up? Oh, yeah. This was something else I really liked. He said that once he had seen like the final product, it solidified in his mind that this was a very similar turning of the wheel, but not exactly the same one that he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the parallel universes that could have been <laughs> yeah i thought that was a very good explanation for that so cool 
Well, thanks for joining me tonight, folks. It's always a pleasure. So I would like to do a show on our influences. So I would like each person to pick a person whose work made you look at something differently or change a belief you had. And I would like you to tell us about them. You said we don't do homework here. (laughs) This sounds like homework. So is writing a normal segment. <laughs> oh, this is really hard. Okay, so fine. This is more like a personal essay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so think of someone who inspired you to do some of the good works you do today. I have a person in mind who wanted, run, wanted to write a segment about, and that's the only way I could think of it. So, hmm. so I guess I'll host a show for the first time in a couple of years. Sounds, Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Thanks for listening, everybody. If you happen to have a minute. And who doesn't? <laughs> Head down to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and write one word in that title field, please. Because actually having a word helps. You could even write two. <laughs> <laughs> Three is right out. <laughs> yeah. One, two, five. <laughs> Three, sir. <laughs> so, yeah, write us a review. If you want to tip us a buck or two a month, we have some people who do that, or a one-time donation. We have hosting costs and equipment and and like that, so we appreciate those people who donate to keep the lights on around here. I am not making any money, and I'm not going to be making any money for the near future. That line of credit is getting a workout with this whole med school thing. So, yeah, but we appreciate you listening, and look forward to talking to you again next month. Good night. 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 Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Marissa McCool, who you can find on Patreon at patreon.com slash QAF. Life. Don't talk to me about life. And of course, Crypto Bros will say that they didn't steal the NFTs because the block stains the blockchain <laughs> block stain. <laughs> <laughs> New name just dropped. Yeah. <laughs> we are are expensive. Uh, we are expensive. Excuse me. <laughs> There's two different sentences that, that got mashed together. Shit. What are we talking about <laughs> next month, Ashlyn? I had this ten is... seconds of realization. <laughs> yep, yep. The look on her face is priceless every this is, time. This is the scariest moment of every episode. <laughs> Can I put my actual phone to bring up the topics channel? I feel like I did pick one. Or maybe I just wanted to steal this one, I don't know. Oh shit, I went to Slack. Still not used to having our Discord. I officially removed the Slack app off my phone yesterday. Nice. I did telephone maintenance of going through my apps and going, I don't need you, I don't need you. Hmm. I I, I quit my job more than a year ago and I'm still in four Slacks, so. (laughs) Oh, Lauren, you should do this one. You should host a show. Oh shit, I did post a thing in the Topics channel today. Lauren's turn. Okay, (laughs) redo it, except Lauren, what are we talking about? Hang on, let me... No, 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 yeah. we, we gotta keep all... Okay, no, uh-huh. th- th- this goes in the outtakes. This goes in the outtakes. <laughs> okay. Outtakes at the end. 
Does Marissa have access to the beep? Maybe we should write out what the order of things go in. Like a 10,000 hertz beep or something? I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> she, I'm sure she can find a beep or make a mm-hmm. beep. She can make a beep. <laughs> beep. 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 There you go. You got it now. <laughs> it was pretty much on pitch. <laughs> Just much, much louder than <laughs> Well, she is the probably the best uh, voice here. <laughs> Actually, I don't trained. know. I tried to sing the other day. And I was just like, "Whoa!" <laughs> My children yell at me when I sing. They're always like, "Stop Whoa. singing! You're ruining it." <laughs> Thanks, thank you, children. You're welcome for the nightly lullabies. <laughs> do I have beeps? What kind of editor do you think you hired here? Oh yeah, I can cut into this show anytime I want. I have that kind of power. I even get my own outtakes. For instance, here's one I cut. When Dune was brought up, I cut into this reaction of me reacting to Dune when I reviewed it for my show, but I heard about it. But I figured it would be too obscure. This was a thing. (laughs) And this other one, just in case people didn't get my assembled Dunning-Kruger joke. It's Dunning-Kruger Mellencamp. You're welcome.